Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. So I hold myself in contempt if you try to pull me up here to court with that attorney. I'll ask the questions here, carjacker Willie. Objection! I'm going to allow it. It characterizes the defendant as a carjacker. You didn't kill Thompson, but you did, Mr. Wells. Yes! Yes, I killed Ed Thompson! I killed him! I killed him! I killed him! I killed him! You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! They're out of order! Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that pairs an inquisitive interviewer with a real-life lawyer. This podcast is sponsored by the Law Offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hello and welcome to Opening Arguments. This is episode 293. I'm Thomas Smith. That over there is P. Andrew Torres Esquire. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm fantastic, Thomas. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. I'm excited. I'm most excited for a couple announcements. Uh, as you are <laughs> listening, if you if you are listening promptly when this uh, was released, we have our live Q&A tonight at 4 Pacific, 7 Eastern. That's going to be a whole lot of fun. I, I'm sure there are plenty of things that the listeners want to know from you that the patrons, sorry, not not listeners, the patrons get to ask the questions. That's the whole that's the whole shtick. I'm sure uh, they're very curious about some of your opinions on maybe uh, the debate, other stuff. We'll see. So that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm also excited for your little teaser right now. Yeah. So uh, not a joke, not a gag. There is a super interesting baseball law case that we are going to get to hopefully <laughs> next week. It is a lawsuit brought by uh, former umpire Angel Hernandez, and it is... Uh, illustrates a really important principle of law. It's really, really neat. It is an ideal deep dive. I wanted to do it today, uh, but we can't. So we're going to try and do it next week. <laughs> Baseball law. Yay. Okay. I'm excited. It's always good that we tease, but you know, occasionally baseball law. It's in moderation. In moderation. Baseball law right. can yeah. be. Uh, you wouldn't want baseball law 162 times a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't. <laughs> No amount of baseball could be that. That is way too much. I mean, no one could handle that many games, I'm sure. Um, all right. And then uh, also you are still going to be on. I, I guess they still haven't invited me. So it's still just Andrew going to be with Muller. She wrote <laughs> live in Philadelphia on July 17th. That is going to be too much fun. I'm jealous. But say hi, everybody who goes and sees Andrew, because I've, you know, I'm, I'm across the country, unfortunately. But uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Go check it out. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. 
Nobody so you're not aware of any context look, during look, the course look. of the election? How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a it? ruse. I know you have to get up and ask a question so important. Russia is a ruse. Well, I'm not a crook. All right. Well, are we... <laughs> This is this is crazy. It's a Tuesday, Andrew, but I'm getting a, a very distinct yodel feel in the air. Like I'm getting a, just a. It's weird. Are we yodeling? Yeah. I, I'm so, it's something in the back of my neck. You know, are we? Uh, little, are we yodeling? Yeah. Tuesday yodeling. There's a, there's a right. chill in the air. There's the the deep reverberations of the flugelhorn in the background, <laughs> and um, yeah, um, this is this is a story that broke last week. Um, and I, I think it's really, really important to go through it and explain what's going on and, you know, to talk about uh, spoilers, I'm going to tamp down the, uh, the, the more hyperbolic aspects of the, of, of the story. Um, but you know, but it also illustrates some really important principles. So, um, so if you've got your, uh, hiking boots on, uh, let's, uh, let's dive yeah, in. Do it. Let's yodel. All right. So, um, CNN's Caitlin Palance filed a motion uh, before Judge Beryl Howell in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. That's a fantastic judge name. Yes. Side note. Yes. That's great. Um, and that request was to make public a list of, quote, miscellaneous matters related to the special counsel's investigation. Uh, so... We learned an awful lot from this, um, but uh, but as it turns out, Judge Howell was the go-to judge for all of the sealed filings in the Mueller investigation. So, what happened? CNN said, hey, what we want are non-grand jury subpoena matters, search warrant applications, and orders applications, and orders for communication records, applications, orders authorizing the use of pen registers that um, records a phone number but doesn't record the conversation, requests for assistance to foreign governments, and any other matters in which the special counsel sought assistance or authorization from this court, the existence of which was publicly disclosed by the attorney general and in the special counsel's report. So that last little line is a great dig, right? <laughs> because in his three and a half page ridiculous non summary, Bill Barr, you know, went, you know, went out to say, oh, that, you know, the Mueller investigation is over. It was thorough. It was comprehensive. They executed nearly 500 search warrants, obtained more than 230 orders for communication records, issued almost 50 orders authorizing the use of pen registers and made 13 requests to foreign governments for evidence. Right. So that was part of Bill Barr saying, see, look like they did all this mm -hmm. stuff and found no collusion, no collusion, no collusion. Um, and CNN, uh, on May 16th was like, oh, hey, well, if if that's your take, right, then can we know who those people are? And um, right. just a couple of days ago on uh, June 24th, uh, Judge Howell said, yes, yes, you can. Hmm. Upon review, it is clear the uh, the investigations are closed. The report has been issued. Um, it quoted the, the the court judge Howell in her order quoted that provision of the Mueller report 
right? And dropped a footnote and said, Attorney General William P. Barr's March 24th, 2019 letter to Congress similarly summarized both the types and volumes of investigative orders that the special counsel sought. Um, the government had opposed the motion and um, and said that while it did not object to the release of, quote, the vast majority of the information, uh, it identified, quote, a few entries on the list that the government may request be redacted from public release to protect ongoing law enforcement interests. Um, and they did that. And then uh, and then Judge Howell ordered the release of one the 499 dockets for applications for search warrants uh, and applications for uh, other orders respecting uh, communications. That is attached as Exhibit A. Okay, so these are search warrants that were filed uh, in the course of the Mueller investigation. Let me tell you, all of them. I have been through all 499. Wow. They're all well, I mean they're just they're just linked with We captions. know what Andrew does in his spare time. <laughs> Look, it's mm, it's documents. Yeah, I uh, I do that for the show, absolutely. So, it will say things like USA versus information associated with the email account redacted, right? So, I'm going to link all of these attachments in the show notes. Um it is possible there is some in interesting information um, that that you can glean from the sh from what we have. But what you can't get are you cannot find information related to anybody whose name has not already been made public as a part of the Mueller investigation. Those names are redacted. That's what I went. That was the first thing I went to to try and go through and find out. So. That's Exhibit A. Exhibit B, Judge Howell ordered the release of 179 dockets for applications for orders under 18 U.S.C. 2703D. What is 18 U.S.C. 2703D? That is the statute governing the requirements for a court order for the disclosure of information's uh, of information obtained either via wiretapping uh, or remote computer service, right? Email records. So the first Exhibit A, the 500, 499, uh, were search warrants that were executed. Exhibit B are wiretaps and uh, computer records. Right. And then Exhibit C is docket numbers with associated information for pen register and or trap and trace applications for orders under 18 U.S.C. 3122 and 3123B filed by the special counsel's office. And again, the pen register is figuring out what a phone number is, right? So it's a lesser standard than wiretapping someone's phones, uh, but it is the standard that allows you to say, oh, okay, we want to know who is this person talking to. That's where you get the pen register. Um, and again, all of the, and that is 21 pen register trap and trace, uh, and that is uh, included as Exhibit C. Now, what happened? <laughs> Immediately after this document came out, there was a story in the raw story. It's by a guy named Bob Brigham, not someone with whom I am previously familiar, who, you know, I, look, he writes for the raw story, right? 
doesn't appear to be a lawyer, uh, clearly is not a lawyer. And what he writes is, Bill Barr killed seven Mueller lines of investigations 10 days after he submitted his report. Okay, and his argument is, Barr just killed seven different lines of investigation started by special counsel Robert Mueller just 10 days after he submitted his reports. Uh, Then they describe the release of the documents. They say attachment B listed information on applications for court orders requested by Mueller. And again, uh, remember, as I pointed out, that that's not entirely correct. These are court orders for wiretaps and computer searches. And then it says the 65 page documents shows seven cases that were closed on April Fool's Day, only 10 days after Mueller submitted his report. The document reveals the orders involve the company's AT&T, Twitter and Facebook. So what's going on here? And that's the end of the article, right? It's just, hey, this looks kind of weird. Here's what's going on here. (laughs) When when you look at those 10 cases, Right. Remember that these are lists of miscellaneous relief. They're lists of individual search warrants or in the case of Exhibit B, individual applications for wiretapping um, that were opened in the course of the Mueller investigation. All of these 10 that were then closed were opened in 2017. Right. So the first one is sealed application for the U.S. Uh, for an order pursuant to 18 U.S.C. 2703 D. Uh, and then that application is requiring AT&T to provide records and other information. Right. So what do they have to provide? Right. They have to provide the computer stuff that is the subject of whatever the 2703 application was opened August 15th, 2017, closed April 1, 2019. These other applications are opened August 15, August 15, August 18, September 5th, September 15th, September 19th, and, and, and so on, right? So, in other words, these are some of the earliest cases that were open, and the fact that they were not closed could could be the result of one of two things, right? It could be, number one, that companies like AT&T, Google, Apple resisted the subpoena for various reasons. We don't know that. And now that the Mueller report has been concluded, right, that, that there's really no reason to continue to seek that, rec- that information. Or... And, and and this is what I anticipate is the case. Um, those companies turned over the information because, again, in general, companies like AT&T, Apple and Google turn over information when there is a valid subpoena that they turned over the information. But just administratively, the cases weren't closed yet. Um, and so, you know, Mueller transmits his report on March 24th. A week later, the. Department of Justice is like, oh, we've got a bunch of these uh, requests for wiretapping uh, and or uh, uh, computer communication that are still open matters that administratively we haven't filed the document that says, yeah, we're done. We we, we got everything we needed. So we're now going to close up all of those. Um, And and again, the reason that all of these are sealed 
cases, right? So I can't pull up any of them on PACER. You can't look at any of these documents. I can't figure out what's going on. But what I can tell you is these are all, 100% of these are requests for the miscellaneous relief of the type that we've described. In fact, the case docket numbers have the little MC designation, meaning that it's miscellaneous relief. None of these are open investigations on Trump cronies. So when Raw Story says, I wonder what's, you know, is, were a whole bunch of open investigations killed, you know, a week after uh, the Mueller report was transmitted over? That is not the case. These, these are not open investigations that were killed. Um, what these show are additional forms of, of investigatory tools that, that the Mueller investigation relied upon. Now, some of the interesting things to me, uh, and again, w- wish I knew who this was, um, there was a wiretap that was issued on March 7th of 2019, right? Three weeks before the Mueller report came out, certainly after it has been written, right? Like, you know, you don't write yeah. a 400 page document in, in, in three. Well, you can. But <laughs> while parts of it were being written, certainly, and while parts of it had long been written, there was a wiretap request filed and granted March 7th. There was one granted on February 21st uh, of 2019. Um, so I suspect that those probably had to deal had had to deal with WikiLeaks. But again, you know, we don't know. There was a search warrant can, in connection with a Facebook account on March 15th of 2019. Hmm. There was a search of electronic devices belonging to someone, probably Paul Manafort, but but you know, now I'm um, this is total speculation. Uh February 13th uh, of 2019. Um another Facebook account March 11th. So the idea that one of one of the questions that you know we raised of Randall Elias and you know we've sort of talked going back and forth is um, to what extent was you know had Mueller sort of made up his mind you know that okay this is as far as I'm going and no further versus you know to what extent did some of the public pronouncements you know maybe shut down or interfere in that investigation. That's what this list is useful for, is is useful to go through. And you can see sort of the ebbs and flows, right? And you can see, by and large, um, Robert Mueller was done with the investigatory part of, of his investigation. He was done, you know, th- there were lots of search warrants that were executed and lots of wiretaps that were executed uh, up until... The end of the summer, beginning of the fall of 2018, um, then there's a lull. There's almost nothing. There are no search warrants between July of 2018 and the beginning of 2019 and February of 2019. Right. There are a handful of wiretaps, um, but none between September, the end of September, the last one that the gap is September 26th, 2018 to February 21st, 2019. So that's the time period when Mueller, from which we can infer that Mueller was like, uh, okay, I, I, I've All got right. this figured Wrap out. Yeah. I know what's going on. Um, there were no more uh, pen registers 
uh, after September of 2018. So September of 2018 is when Mueller kind of drew the line in the sand. That's also really interesting because that's before the 2018 midterm elections, right? And so we were speculating hmm. what is the effect of the midterm elections on the Mueller report. Um, this is, you know, more indications that it, it it certainly didn't have any effect in an investigatory capacity. So um, thank you to uh, Caitlin Polance. This is a real treasure trove yeah. of information. But um, the, the raw story indicate. look, like I do not, but far be it from me to rush to the defense of Bill Barr. It's the reason I pulled all these documents, because, you know, I, I, uh, two years ago, I would have looked at a story like that and been like, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. Hmm. It's not ridiculous from this attorney general. And uh, and it was worth, you know, doing a deep dive and worth bringing to ground. Uh, but uh, but no, there were not open criminal investigations that were all killed on the same day by Bill Barr after receiving the Mueller report. Plus, let's face it, you have a document addiction. I mean, it's as you get <laughs> Andrew Torres, you've heard it here first document addiction. Your wife walks in. You've got documents spread all over the bed. No, no, it's not. It's it's porn. I swear, it's not. Do- it's porn. <laughs> it's not. It's not documents. I'm not reading more Bill Barr nonsense. It's a <laughs> mm, 1,100 pages of captions. Um, I'll be I'll be right back. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good times. Well, little yodel update. So, I mean, if you're bottom lining this for us, do you think anything real major is coming out of this, or? Yeah, kind of kind of a dead end, unfortunately, so, or what? You know, look, I think this fits into the overall pattern of what I think is going to happen next, which is now that the Mueller investigation is over, right, courts that have information that is useful to the public will will start declassifying that information, right? We'll start lifting the seals and, you know, and our investigative journalists are obviously going to continue to be aggressive in petitioning the court for those kinds of orders. And, um, and, you know, this is, this is the first, you know, foot in the door again, not identifying parties, but we did learn interesting stuff. And, you know, as as that continues for us, we, we will continue to learn additional interesting stuff. So uh, I'm excited about it because it means more documents. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's j- job and hobby security for you. Uh, <laughs> Opening arguments is brought to you by Quip. We're not the first to say it. Sometimes we need a vacation from our vacation. Delayed flights, hotel snafus, chatty travel companions. Get away for two minutes twice a day with Quip. Their wireless electric toothbrush is lightweight and compact, so it packs away easily in your tote or carry-on when you overstuff your luggage. It happens to all of us. Plus, the timed sonic vibrations give you a meditative break from that jam-packed itinerary, even if it's just between moving from the hammock to the pool chair. When it finally comes time to go home, keep staycationing with a fresh and simple health routine. Quip gives you sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums. Some people brush too hard, and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive, but not Quip. And that built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth evenly. That was a game changer for me. I tend to get distracted while I'm brushing my teeth and I'll start. I think the first quadrant I brush like way too long and then I rush through the other ones. Not with Quip. That helps you out. That little pulse tells you it's time to move on. 
That's one of the many reasons I love Quip. And that's why anytime we go to live shows, even in our San Francisco trip the other week, I brought my Quip toothbrush. It's so easy to travel with, and you're still getting that amazing clean that you get every single night. So Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash OA right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash OA. Well, it's time to uh, move on to the Kaiser case that you teased last week. I know you're very excited about this. <laughs> so uh, why don't you uh, bring us up to speed on the Kaiser case? I, I will. So uh, we covered this case in depth in OA-266. You may recall this was the ah. case of the veteran with PTSD who was challenging internal regulations determining the amount of compensation uh, to which he was owed. And oh yeah, was this the uh, the the kind of the, the stepbrother of Chevron deference? Our deference. That's exactly right. And um, ah. and so. Mo- Can't tell them apart. I don't remember. Uh, You're gonna. To- I, I will. I <laughs> will. There's, there's an easy way to to remember it, but it's a challenge. Um, I was so so. The most important thing. I was 100 percent wrong in that. I said that this court will overturn our deference. The mm. court didn't overturn our deference uh, explicitly, but as we will see, it tried to. <laughs> and, oh, was wait, hold on. Was this the case I just saw where Gorsuch sided with the? Liberals or was that a different? No, one? Um, this, okay, is a, this is a this is a 9-0 decision, but it's a weird 9-0 decision. So we will we will break it down and, and go through all of it. It is one in which it is it is being claimed that that uh, the Chief Justice Roberts sided with the liberals, which again is yeah. not is not a fair reading of this case in any way whatsoever, because the only siding that John Roberts did with the liberals was. In the parts of the opinion that were literally unanimous. Now, but yeah, it's the thing where they like show him a flashcard that has the number two, and the, all nine justices are like, "That's the number two. Whoa, they're siding with the liberals. The conservatives <laughs> sided with the liberals. Is it one of those kind of? Uh, kind of. There's there's a bit more of a nuance to it, but 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 yeah, okay. there is. This is in no way siding with the liberals. It's not quite as cut and dried as that. <laughs> and there is an aspect like we have discussed how, you know, the uh, the John Roberts institutional thesis, right? We have discussed that if something looks so nakedly political that it's going to show up as a black mark in the history books, that will cause John Roberts to reconsider whether he wants the court that bears his name to issue that ruling. It will not stop him, right? That that's that it's not an absolute bar and, you know, uh, we have detailed a number of cases that are preposterous uh, rulings that overturn longstanding precedent, right? Roberts's legacy as presiding over the court that issued the death knell to stare decisis is, I think, all but assured anyway. But nevertheless, that's that's the effort to, to try and appeal and, and try and and persuade Roberts. And, and you can see that having an effect uh, in in how this decision was phrased. So let's go back. What's our deference and 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 how is it related to Chevron deference? Our deference. Here's here's the way to think about it. Chevron deference is the big target of the Federalist Society. It Mm -hmm. will be gone for reasons that 
are, are obvious and are made even more obvious in this opinion, um, which which I will get to. And that governs when a delegation of authority from Congress to an executive agency is not clear. And then the, the question is, does the agency's interpretation of that delegation of authority control or do the courts get to decide? Right. Mm -hmm. And that I could have probably rattled that one off. I just can't. Now I can't remember the hour part. But the important thing is that when you're applying Chevron deference, what the agency wants to do is usually 100 percent clear. Right. So Chevron case, mid 80s, Ronald Reagan's EPA. uh, And the question was the EPA Congress under the EPA delegated uh, under the Environmental Protection Act, delegated to the Environmental Protection Agency the authority to, you know, do stuff about clean air. And then mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan's EPA was like, "Yeah, we're going to do stuff about clean air. We're going to we're going to make it dirtier." <laughs> and <laughs> right. And the question was, w- was that within? And I'm I'm obviously you know uh, uh, grossly oversimplifying, not exaggerating but, yeah, at but all, not exaggerating much. Um, <laughs> and the question was. Do we defer to the EPA's adjudication of whether it has the power to promulgate those regulations or does every court get to evaluate that brand new? Right. And the Chevron deference, again, totally non-controversial conservative opinion said, yeah, look, we we let if it's unclear, if Congress is clear, then that's it. Right. Congress spoke and the agency's opinion doesn't matter. But if Congress isn't clear, we defer to the agency in determining whether the rules that they've promulgated are within that delegation of authority. And that's the big thing that conservatives, that that hyper partisan Federalist Society, extreme right, abolish the government conservatives want gone. Um, And we've talked about that at length. Relatedly, and 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 when I say relatedly, I mean it shows up in conservative arguments as oh, and by the way, we want we want rid of our deference too. Um, our deference is when there is an unclear regulation from an agency. Is to whom do we go to interpret how that regulation? Should you know to interpret that regulation, right? What that regulation means? Do we go to the people who made it, or do we go to a court staffed with right-wing howler monkeys that can say whatever they want? <laughs> um, and again, for as non-controversial, I, think I know yeah, what go, they're going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for as for as non-controversial as Chevron deference was at the time, um, the our decision was a nine-zero decision authored by that liberal Antonin Scalia. Yeah. And 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 Scalia said, under this doctrine, this court has long deferred to an agency's reasonable reading of its own genuinely ambiguous regulations. That had to do with the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, go back to episode 266 and you can uh, listen to, we, we summarize the facts of the hour case as well. Um, but ultimately, the standard is, And again, I'm quoting from Scalia's own words here, right? 
because yeah. this particular test, this particular regulation, is a creature of the Secretary of Labor's own regulations, his interpretation of it is, under our jurisprudence, controlling unless, quote, plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulation, end of quote. This deferential standard is easily met here. Um, and so th- that's been the rule for 25 years. And it is so obvious as as you know to to really test the outer limits of just how activist this court is going to be in taking on you know quote the administrative state um i i thought uh that there would be absolutely uh no question that um the that this court would strike down our deference as well as chevron deference i was wrong on that the mm. the court Nine O ruled to maintain our deference, ruled to maintain our deference on the basis of stare decisis. And oh, oh, that matters now. Yeah. Oh, okay. And weird. At the same time, grossly curtailed the scope of our deference in this nine (laughs) O opinion, which, by the way, this is exactly the blueprint. So uh, when I said I was wrong, this is what you predicted with with Roe v. Wade. Wade. This is 100 percent the blueprint for what this court is going to do with Roe v. Wade. I've never been more certain in my life. So I I was absolutely wrong. I thought the court was going to be more nakedly activist. Roberts was more shifty about it. By the way, Roberts did not write the majority opinion. The majority opinion was written by Elena Kagan, and you can tell because although it's 9-0, the Howler Monkey contingent selectively adopts various parts of the opinion. And again, you, you see this sometimes, but it's kind of rare to see the majority opinion in a 9-0, in a 9-0 case get adopted parts 1 2B, 3B, and 4, <laughs> but not 2A, 3A, and 5. <laughs> and the reason is because those additional portions are going through the history of our deference and talking about its importance. And the Howler Monkey <laughs> contingent was, you know, not willing to sign on to that. They did, however, sign on to this, which you will see how little this is is going to matter. (laughs) So 2B begins with, as if all that were not enough, and that's the the 2A of the importance of our deference that uh, only the court's liberal wing signed on to. Stare decisis cuts strongly against Kaiser's position, right? That's the, the, the veteran. Overruling precedent is never a small matter. Adherence to precedent is a foundation stone of the rule of law. It promotes even-handed, predictable, and consistent development of legal principles, fosters reliance on judicial decisions, and contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process. To be sure, stare decisis is not an inexorable command, but any departure from the doctrine demands special justification, something more than just an argument that the precedent was wrongly decided. And that is even more than usually so in the circumstances here. And then there are three arguments that are given. First, Kaiser asks us to overrule not just a single case, but a long line of precedent uh, dating back to the seminal rock decision and and even before that uh, in 1945. Second, because that is so, abandoning our deference would cast doubt on many settled constructions of rules. 
As Kaiser acknowledged at oral arguments, a decision in his favor would allow relitigation of any decision based on Auer, forcing courts to wrestle with whether or not Auer had actually made a difference. It is the rare ruling that introduces so much instability into so many areas of law all in one blow. Uh, and then third, the majority says, uh, the, even if we're wrong about Auer, the court remains free to alter what we've done. In a constitutional case, only we can correct our error, but that's not so here. Our deference decisions are balls tossed into Congress's court for acceptance or not, as that branch elects. Um, that's a really significant part of the holding in this case, because think about what this means from a negotiation standpoint back and forth. It means... In order to get the votes of the conservative majority in this case, you had to say, look, I get it. The law is super clear and has been settled for 74 years, but it's super duper super clear in this case. And it would be a gigantic disaster of unimaginable proportions to overturn this particular doctrine. And that grudgingly got the vote. <laughs> got the votes of the howler monkey contingent uh who by the way wrote and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the concurrences you know the the, the four justice howler monkey contingent wrote a concurrence that is we'll get to but before we do that let's talk about the second half the the, the other part of the shoe dropping which is yet another thing I was right about, <laughs> would rather have not been. But one of the things I said on episode 266, I said, they will rule in favor of Kaiser and they will overturn our in so doing. They didn't overturn our. I was wrong about that. I was right that they ruled in favor of Kaiser. And you might be saying, well, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. How can you apply our deference, right? Defer to the agency's own determination. The agency determined that Kaiser didn't get his relief and yet remand back for more finding to, to give Kaiser his relief. And the answer is by greatly curtailing what our deference now means going forward, if it means anything. So going back to Kagan's majority opinion. And again, this is the part that's 9-0. With that, we can finally return to Kaiser's own case. You may remember that his retroactive benefits depend on the meaning of the term relevant records in a VA regulation. The VA, through a single judge's opinion, understood records to be relevant only if they relate to the basis of the VA's initial denial of benefits. By contrast, Kaiser argued that records are relevant if they go to any benefits criterion, even one that was uncontested. The Federal Circuit upheld the board's interpretation based on our deference. Applying the principles outlined in this opinion, we hold that a redo is necessary for two reasons. First, the Federal Circuit jumped the gun in declaring the regulation ambiguous. We have insisted that a court bring all of its interpretive tools to bear before finding that to be so. It is not enough to casually remark, as the court did here, that both parties insist that the plain regulatory language supports their case and neither party's position strikes us as unreasonable. Rather, the court must make a conscientious effort to determine, based on indicia like text, structure, history, and purpose— those are all conservative buzzwords. Whether the regulation really has more than one reasonable meaning. The Solicitor General argued in this court that the board's reading is the only reasonable one. Perhaps Kaiser will make the converse claim below. Before even considering deference, the court must seriously think through all of those positions. 
So I'm going to get through the rest of this. But the first thing that this opinion does is say and give license to judges to say, oh, our deference doesn't apply if you're convinced on the text, structure, history, and purpose, that the regulation isn't really ambiguous after all, even if both parties agree that it's ambiguous, even if both parties advance contrary interpretations. So you get to inject uh, judicial determination, even in a case of deference, at this sort of step zero, right? Continuing. And second, the federal court assumed too fast that our deference should apply in the event of genuine ambiguity. As we have explained, that's not always true. A court must assess whether the interpretation is of the sort that Congress would want to receive deference. Right. Hmm. The Solicitor General selected, suggested an oral argument that the answer in this case would be no. He explained that all 100 or so members of the VA board act individually rather than in panels and that their roughly 80,000 annual decisions have no precedential value. He thus questioned whether a board member's ruling reflects the considered judgment of the agency as a whole. And then there is a citation with an internal link that says declining to give Chevron deference to rulings being churned out at a rate of 10,000 a year at an agency's 46 scattered offices. We do not, back to the opinion, we do not know what position the government will take on that issue below, but the questions the Solicitor General raised are exactly the kind the court must consider in determining whether to award our deference to the to the board's interpretation. So that gives two additional grounds for a lower court, right? Because remember, the game here, we, we know that the Supreme Court is going to issue terrible rulings now and for the next 30 years unless something happens, right? They're going to be bad. The reason precedent is important is because even a hyper-activist Supreme Court can only do so much damage, right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you come in, you can wreck the place as as much as possible, but but you know, the Supreme Court only takes a couple of hundred cases a year. They can't overturn Ugh. centuries of precedent actively, <sighs> right? Jeez, knock on wood. I, I don't Yeah, right. I don't put anything past them, but right. okay, sure. And so what that means is for day-to-day stuff, right? Even very conservative judges at the district court level are bound by vertical precedent, right? A a district court judge has to follow the precedent by the circuit court that sits above that district, right? So at the District of Maryland, you've got to follow what the Fourth Circuit says. And every district court has to follow what the Supreme Court says. So before this case, when it was a, a, a straightforward matter of our deference, you would come before and you would be like, look, judge, this is a case. There's an ambiguous there's an ambiguous ruling. And the administrative agency has said it means X. And under our deference, that means it means X. And no matter how much any of us like that, you don't get to weigh in here, judge, because you're constrained by the our deference doctrine. Well, now. Those district court judges are no longer so constrained. They can they can intervene in in two steps, and we're about to get to the third. So we've already talked about how John Roberts it's it is totally misleading. Uh, there's a Daily Beast article that says John Roberts isn't the conservative you thought he was. 
The chief justice joins mm-hmm. with the liberal justices out of respect for precedent. Does this tell us how he might vote on abortion? Uh, well, it it does, but not in the it way does. the Daily Beast yeah. thinks. Yeah. Um, and and John Roberts is indeed the conservative we, we think he is. Roberts wrote a concurring opinion. He wrote in his concurrence to say, I don't think there is that much of a difference between the majority opinion and the Howler Monkey concurrence, uh, which we'll get to in a second. And uh, to say, and I'm just going to read this word for word, one further point. Issues surrounding judicial deference to agency interpretations of their own regulations are distinct from those raised in connection with judicial deference to agency interpretations of statutes enacted by Congress. C. Chevron USA, Inc. versus Natural Resources Defense Council, Inc. I do not regard this court's decision today to touch upon that latter question. There is only one reason you write that in a concurrence. You write that in a concurrence to say, look, guys, I get it. We didn't strike down our deference. We gutted most of it. Uh, but uh, but I promise you, Chevron deference, that thing's gone. Um, that That's the only reason you write that. It is a 100% unmistakable signal to litigants as to where John Roberts stands. You Chevron deference is is about to be dead. So now we get to the Howler Monkey concurrence written by Gorsuch. Joined entirely by Thomas, joined by Kavanaugh in parts, joined by Alito in parts. Um, And again, we have talked about the difference in temperament between Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, particularly in writing. Um, Here is Neil Gorsuch doing his best to become the next generation of, uh, of, of Antonin Scalia in terms of sarcasm. It should have been easy for this court to say goodbye to Auer versus Robbins. In disputes involving the relationship between government and the people, our requires judges to accept an executive agency's interpretation of its own regulations, even when that interpretation doesn't represent the best and fairest readings. This rule creates a systematic judicial bias in favor of the federal government and against everyone else. Nor is ours biased rule the product of some congressional mandate we are powerless to correct. This court invented it almost by accident and without any meaningful effort to reconcile it with the APA or the Constitution. A legion of academics, lower court judges, and members of this court have called upon us to abandon our, yet today a bare majority flinches and our lives on. Still, today's decision is more of a stay of execution than a pardon. This court cannot muster even five votes to say that our is lawful or wise. Instead, a majority retains our only because of stare decisis. And yet, far from standing by that precedent, the majority proceeds to impose so many new and nebulous qualifications and limitations on our that the chief justice claims to see little practical difference between keeping it on life support in this way and overruling it entirely. So the doctrine emerges maimed and enfeebled, in truth, zombified. Um He's not wrong on that second part there, right? Like that is. Well, but how does it, you, this was four justices though, right? That signed on to yep. this. So how, it doesn't matter then, right? right. Because, because work? remember that although this is 9-0, the only parts of the majority opinion that Chief Justice Roberts signed on to were the ones also signed on to by the Howler Monkey contingent. 
right? We're not the ones going through the lengthy history and justification of our deference. That is Section 2A. So when Gorsuch says this court cannot muster five votes for the proposition that our versus Robbins is a good decision, he's right. That that section in 2A only got four votes. And so when you look at minority opinions, the way in which minority opinions can have traction is when a minority opinion says describes something that the other justices are like, yeah, no, that's, you know, you're you're. That, that's correct. You are accurately describing what happens, right? So, for example, think about— Well, they're kind of saying the quiet part loud a yep, little bit. That is exactly right. And so Gorsuch continues to say, One can hope that the chief justice in his concurrence is correct, and that whether we formally overrule our or merely neuter it, the result in most cases will prove the same. But means, not just ends, matter. And retaining even this debilitated version of our threatens to force litigants and lower courts to jump through needless and perplexing new hoops and in the process deny the people the independent judicial decisions they deserve. All to what end? So that we may pretend to abide stare decisis? So, yeah, I thought oh, that was a pretty good example of... <laughs> That's definitely the quiet part Of saying loud. the quiet part loud. Um, I, it, look, that... This is it is it is no longer remarkable that, you know, as we point out that that this court is hurtling at breakneck speed towards writing an opinion that tracks the Thomas concurrence that we read last week that says, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's not like stare decisis counts when the opinion is wrong. Um, and and if that's the case, right, like that is saying stare decisis doesn't count. Right. <laughs> right? Um, every time you you get justices together right like to change pre-existing law you do so because you think the last decision was wrong the 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 question is whether that institutional legacy will uh whether that principle will, will, will continue to guide the court and and i didn't think it was possible for to be out pessimistic on this right like i thought i I was as negative as you could be you you go back listen to my debate with justin walker and you know he he mocks me in the debate when i say adding brett kavanaugh to the to the supreme court is going to accelerate the the court's disdain for precedent and he said well you know brett kavanaugh wrote a book called the law of precedent which i'd happen to have read right yeah i mean it, it it the 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 scorn was palpable, right? Was, oh, come on. Like, you're claiming that the court is really going to give up on on evaluating precedent. Um, that's what these cases are are saying. So, you know, this case is precisely the example. And, it, and it's really, um, it's disappointing to me the the way uh, what Roberts has done here has, has really successfully manipulated the, the press, right? This was designed to produce the result that it did, which is a bunch of journalists patting themselves on the back going, hey, our hot take about how John Roberts isn't as conservative as you think he is. And, you know, look, he sided with the liberals and votes for stare decisis and the court is safe. Uh, uh, that that produced these these kinds of opinion pieces and they are not warranted in this case. So there you go. Yeah, they really get to have the best of all the worlds, the conservatives do. I mean, they're going to do the same thing with abortion, and then they'll be gutting Roe v. Wade, 
but in name, you know, it'll still kind of exist. And then a bunch of people who shouldn't be the ones covering these art, uh, decisions, apparently, will say, oh, well, they sided with the liberals. Eh. Turns out you were all worried about nothing. Is that is that a good prediction? That, is that what's going to happen? That is, I will sign on 100% to that prediction. All right. Well, we can do a us, we're wrong together then. If, if that, Hopefully, it would be nice to be wrong about that. I guess I don't fully understand why our deference wasn't just overturned then. Like, so, so I thought, cause I thought it was only the Howler monkeys were on that, but then you said Roberts only signed on to the Howler monkey part. So I, I guess I'm still a little confused. Yeah, what, so, what amount of our deference is somehow still alive after this? So, and again, it's, it's tough to know because of those two conditions that, that I read out to you, right? In other words, it's now on the courts to be extra scrutinizing of whether a regulation is really ambiguous or not, right? And it's on the courts to inject themselves and then say, even if it is really ambiguous, um, is this the kind of regulation that Congress wanted a uh, for us to for the for the courts to give deference to the agency determination right and both of those right allow for subjective uh, interference again right allow a judge to be like well look like this isn't really uh, capable of of more than one interpretation even though it has more than one interpretation <laughs> being advanced in this crime you know no i'm gonna side i'm gonna side with uh you know, with 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 one side over the other or saying this is legitimately ambiguous. But as the Supreme Court said in Kaiser v. Wilkie, the fact that something is genuinely ambiguous does not mean that we must necessarily defer to the agency's judgment. And so, you know, uh, as as Neil Gorsuch points out, those are two. The, the first one isn't entirely new. Um the second test is entirely new. Um, the first one is the court urging judges to be, you know, even more rigorous in determining whether uh, a a regulation is genuinely ambiguous or not. So I, I can get why Elena Kagan wrote the opinion. Right. Elena Kagan was clearly lobbied like like it, it, it is 100 percent obvious that what happened here is uh, they got together to vote and. The Howler Monkey contingent put up their arms and John Roberts said, OK, four votes to overturn our deference, uh, four votes to maintain our deference. And then he pulled uh, he said, if if I vote to maintain, who's going to write that? Uh, and Elena Kagan put up her hands. Not surprising. Um, she she and I share like a, a love of this sort of geekery. Uh, and he pulled her aside and said, OK, um, I'm only signing on if you write X, Y and Z. Um, and that's so, hmm. you know, so the underlying notion, so he kind of wanted to split the difference yeah, a little bit. Exactly right. Yeah. So so look, the underlying notion that John Roberts is separate from the Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Alito, Thomas wing, right, is something we agree with. Right. We've 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 pointed that out. Yeah. He's not quite that. Right. Bad. And we pointed out <laughs> that the reason is not on ideology, but is on the, you know, institutional thesis, the idea of I'm not going to sign on to something that looks so nakedly political as to bring, you know, scorn and shame upon me and, and my uh, untold generations. 
Except, you know, unless I really hate it, right? Uh, then yeah. I'm perfectly okay to sign on to Janice versus Ask Me, right? Um, that 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 was just too important for me. I'm, I'm happy to risk giving up the court's capital on that. And that's how this decision got crafted. And uh, and it is the the guidepost going forward. You are going to see, I, I predict, more of these sort of helplessly fractured opinions uh, in which the holding is very, very narrow, greatly restricts the scope of prior precedent while paying lip service to to, to stare decisis. And um, I wish I could be less pessimistic. But but I tried to be less pessimistic, yeah. and then you know reality decided to undercut me. So um, <laughs> so now so now I'm yeah. sticking. Well, with I thought my you were instinct. a little more pessimistic on this one, yeah, weren't well, you? I thought, that, I, did, I thought you got it wrong. I, I did. They, I did. I thought I thought they would yeah. be more nakedly politically activist. And, um, gotcha. and there were four votes for it, but uh, but not five. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we cheer ourselves up with a good old fashioned <laughs> hilarious hypothetical. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Are you a cop question? All right. If you ask a cop if he's a cop, he's like obligated to tell you it's in the Constitution. Constitution of America? So, so go ahead and ask. You a cop? This is this is oh man. (laughs) I'm I'm glad we're doing this. This is a little palate cleanser, a little cheer you up. But this is not. Come on. All right, I'll try to say who wrote this question. Avar Armfjord Bjarmanson, I guess, asks. I've read quote unquote advice to keep a closed bottle of liquor in your car. Then if you're driving drunk and the police pull you over, you chug it and they can't prove if you were driving drunk or just became intoxicated after they stopped you. It's insane advice, but I'm morbidly curious to know if anyone's actually tried things like that and if they worked. Uh, Don't drive drunk would be the first open arguments advice. Um, Yeah. That's number one. Don't take legal advice from a podcast with, with the exception of this sentence right here, which is, by far, the much better advice here is don't drive drunk. Okay, like yeah, can't put stick Uber on your phone. Drink as much we as you want. We got Uber and yeah. Lyft nowadays. Yeah. Come yeah. on, um, do it. So no, I, I having said that, this also seems insane. It's, it's because even if you were going to try to drive drunk, I I mean, there's like open container laws. There's all that. I mean, right? They've got to have some other way to get you with all yeah, this. Yeah, it, it's and um. This would not do what you what the the proposition behind it suggests. That's why it's a perfect "Are you a cop?" segment because it has that like kind of veneer of plausibility. You could just imagine like you know a bunch of drunks in a bar being like, "No, what you got to do yeah. is you keep a closed bottle in your car." Right. So I I get I get the kind of surface level uh, plausibility. Let's let's break this down. Um, number one, as you pointed out. Um, Keeping a bottle of liquor in your car, closed or not, may run you afoul of other laws. So you've now made uh, your drunk driving conviction potentially worse. Number two, you you do not need. There are a great many cases, uh, and and particularly, um, you know, most of these are uh, well, these are criminal offenses. Um, but there are uh, documented cases in which. For whatever reason, the breathalyzer evidence gets thrown out, right? Hmm. There's a 
there's either a defect or there was a problem in how it was administered or, you know, there were other problems. And so right under the standard rules of admissibility, you then suppress the breathalyzer. You can still convict somebody for driving drunk on the testimony of the police officer. Right. Um, so the 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 idea that, oh, you've rendered the breathalyzer worthless uh, now then, you know, it's all kind of up for grabs. That's not the case. Yes, it is still a requirement that you be proven that you be proven guilty uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not just a mere preponderance of the evidence. But if the question is, we have your testimony of I wasn't driving drunk, but the minute I was pulled over, I got out and chugged <laughs> uh, a whole bunch of vodka like it. It, it every jury on earth would be like you were driving drunk <laughs> right <laughs> like, that that's just the inference to be drawn so all yeah i had just the bright idea after i was pulled over for driving totally soberly yeah. that i needed to instantly down a lot of alcohol in my car while the cop was walking up to yeah. it uh, believable you believe me right right, right. um and 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 as you point out, right, like when you've been pulled over, um, there are police regulations that, you know, generally prohibit getting out of the car. Right. And those are for the safety of the officer. Yeah. So, yeah, you've got to open this thing and down it while you're sitting there, which, uh, again, in a great again, not my area of law, but in a great many jurisdictions. Right. The. Many DUI statutes are written in such a way that they prohibit sitting even in a stopped car yeah, and car. drinking yeah. a whole bunch of alcohol. So this is absolutely terrible advice. You knew it was terrible advice, uh, but yeah. maybe you didn't know why. Now you know why. It's risking additional crimes. Uh, it it doesn't do the thing that you think it does. Uh, it does things that you don't think it does. <laughs> uh, that's that's why we do are you a cop but, uh, uh, but i love times. the question yeah. great palate cleanser at the end of the episode yeah huh, how fun that was uh yeah not good advice <laughs> all right well it's time to thank our new patrons over at patreon.com slash law enjoying all those goodies they're asking all the questions they're seeing us in the q a tonight along with everybody if you want to join uh, so make sure to go join patreon.com slash law. Go join up. All right. Why don't you start, Andrew? All right. Thank you to new patrons, Casey, Matthew Aarons. I think that's a, that's a returning patron. So welcome back, Matthew. Sarah Ryan, Peter Cashmore. Uh, great name. I hope that's your real name. And if so, you could always give us more cash. Uh, to, sorry, that's a dad joke, but we got two dads on the show. So uh, to... A string of unpronounceable characters, and this is yeah, Diamond. Literally. O with a thing over it, Diamond, Cross, Diamond, and you with a thing over it. So uh, not sure what you were going for there, but uh, but thank you. And thank you to Nancy Smith. And thank you, Tokyo James. Look what you did starting law school in six weeks at 33. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Not, yeah, we get a lot of people excited about the law on this show, for better or worse, for better or worse. I'm not <laughs> who knows? The world needs more lawyers, don't you think? Yeah. Joshua, no, maybe they're going to go do some 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 good. <laughs> you never know. Joshua Davis, J.E. Meisenhelder, and Frank Diaz, thank you so much for pledging. We appreciate it so much. Makes the show happen. 
You are the best. And now it is time for the answer to last week's TTTBE. Oh, no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam. No kidding. This was the bar question involving a large venomous snake that had been defanged, kept in a cage, got loose uh, during a storm. Uh, and then during the cleanup, a volunteer worker comes across the snake, gets freaked out, tries to run away, falls, breaks his arm, sues the homeowner based on strict liability. And the question is, will that worker prevail? As you correctly analyzed, the question comes down to, is this a strict liability case, right? If if it is, then the answer is D, yes, because the worker's injury was the result of his fear of the escape snake. Uh, if not, then it's A, no, because the snake's escape was caused by a force of nature, right? Um, everything else uh, is the, the, the B and the C answers, as you correctly point out, are red herrings in the case of uh, of strict liability, right? Because Are they venomous red herrings? Yeah. Or are they? <laughs> um, because, you know, right, the question about precautions did he secure the snake right none of that matters if it's strict liability um whether the worker should have anticipated the injury that doesn't matter if it's strict liability the only question is did he get injured as a proximate result of the snake um you went with a unfortunately uh owning a an abnormally dangerous wild animal is one of the few things and, and every lawyer law student studying for the bar exam uh I, i'm betting got this right because it's just one of those weird things that you remember as a law student that like strict liability applies you know to x to y to z and also if you own an abnormally dangerous wild animal yeah a large venomous snake is such a thing even though it has been defanged and it is no longer an actual danger um the the worker here doesn't know that right he comes he's like holy yeah. clown horn there's a you know burmese <laughs> python here what i i don't know snakes but um you know there's a there's a giant rattlesnake don't take that snake is, advice yeah. from this podcast. yeah <laughs> that's about to bite me i better run away he runs away breaks his arm uh the law says yeah well that's a reasonable thing to be freaked out by and uh yeah. and we want him to recover yeah, so, i should have known so he gets to recover from i've been getting in my own way the last couple you questions i know these yeah. answers i really i don't know what's going on mm-hmm. I'm just trying to make the real lawyers feel better. <laughs> well, I, it, it, I don't want to do too well, you know, and then everybody's going to be like, ah, oh, anybody can do this. Yet another that's way a, in which you are giving back on this show. So I'm, uh, I'm, that's I'm my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. All right. Well, hop in your time machine. Tell us who this week's big winner is. It was not me and it was not the snake. It was not the guy who broke his arm. Who was it? Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. All right, Thomas. Well, this week's winner is our first non-human winner of TTTBE. This is Malcolm the Dragon on Facebook. Uh, Malcolm the Dragon owns uh, our friend Marie Baker and uh, is a bearded dragon and decided to play along since apparently this was reptile law saying listening to opening arguments with mommy and since there's nothing saying a dragon can't be a lawyer i'm taking the bar with thomas uh he goes with secret answer e which is in dragon language and says the snake gets dollars from human for taking his fangs um not correct but uh adorable reptile themed everyone give malcolm the dragon a follow on facebook it is an adorable page and uh, Malcolm and Marie thank you for playing along with TTTB 
All right. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you most of all to our patrons. They make the show happen. Join their ranks. Patreon.com slash law. Oh, I meant to meant to say as well. Patrons got that uh, 191, that bonus. Or sorry, I keep saying that. 291. Shorting us by 100 ep- episodes. 291. They got that episode a full three days early, I think. So that's another another good reason to be a patron. So I hope you all enjoyed that. And uh, and it's okay if not. You still get to enjoy tons of good stuff uh, on the main feed, as always. And we will see you on Friday for a rapid response. Till then. You betray the law! This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Thomas. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. Until next time. Podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media LLC. All rights reserved. Opening Arguments is produced with the assistance of our editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, our production assistant, Ashley Smith, and our researcher, Deborah Smith. Special thanks to Teresa Gomez and the entire OA Wiki team. Follow them at, at OA Wiki. And a big thank you to our Facebook group moderators, Alicia Cook, Natalie Newell, Emily Waters, Eric Brewer, and Brian. Check out the Opening Arguments Facebook community. And finally, thanks to Thomas Smith for creating the show's theme song, which is used with permission. What is 2703D? What is 2703D? I thought I... <laughs> I, I had that as though I, I had was, that right here god damn it and you throw me a lot of tough ones and that i thought i was like come on even andrew can't ask me that there's mm, 1100 pages of captions uh, i'll be i'll be right back sorry <laughs>